friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a cookbook author and longtime journalist. We are kicking off a brand new series today called How I Got My Dream Job. It's built on the idea that wellness encompasses feeling our best in every part of our lives, and our careers make up a huge portion of that. My hope with these episodes is that they'll both demystify and maybe de-glamorize quote-unquote dream jobs a bit, while also highlighting the -the behind-the-scenes awesome elements that the public is typically less privy to. And of course, there'll be plenty of pragmatic advice whether you want to actually pursue the career or not. On this episode, for instance, we talk a lot about how to kickstart any creative process, dealing with jealousy, and a surprisingly positive take on procrastination. My guest today is Andy Bartz, the author of New York Times bestseller and Reese's book club pick, We Were Never Here, as well as The Herd and The Lost Night, all of which you can find wherever books are sold. I met Andy back when we were both magazine editors in New York, and we talk a lot about the realities of the magazine world in this episode, including the less glamorous parts of travel writing that no one talks about, and our advice for anyone who wants to work in the editorial world or pitch freelance articles. Then we get into novel writing. I loved this conversation so much. It was psychological, philosophical, and asked a lot of questions about who we are and why we do what we do, which is actually one of the things that I love about Andy's books so much. They're filled with as many conversation starters as they are incredible plot twists. Andy was just so open and thoughtful and lovely. She shared how much money she made as an editor and makes now as an author, like with real numbers, how she silences her self-critic to actually create art, what happened behind the scenes to get her books optioned by Mila Kunis and Molly Sims and Netflix and selected for Reese's Book Club, the surprising thing that no one shares about your dreams coming true, and so much more. I would love to hear your thoughts on the episode. Were you surprised about anything Andy shared about novel or magazine writing? Do you agree with our Emily Nagoski theory about creativity? We would love to know. So screenshot as you're listening and tag us on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody and Andy is at Andy with an I, Bart. As always, if you know anyone who would love this episode, I personally feel like it would be a great one just to have discussions about with a friend. Please send them the link so that they can join the HT fam. And if you were sent this link by someone, remember to hit that subscribe button. We have new episodes dropping every single Wednesday. That feels so good to say. We're doing every single week now with amazing topics coming up like the neuroscience of anxiety, how to actually dress cute. I'm excited for that one. I really need it. My first edition of skincare sessions where I ask a dermatologist about all of the crazy treatments for gorgeous skin that I somehow only heard about this year and so much more. And if you have anyone that you would love to hear from on a future episode of How I Got My Dream Job, let me know and I will do my best to get them on. All right, let's get into the episode. Here's how Andy Bartz got her dream job. Andy, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today. It's like, it's been so fun watching. I mean, I already knew you were like a badass editor and journalist, but I feel like I've gotten like this really cool front row seat to watching your book career take off and it's just skyrocketed and it's so fun. And now I have like people who don't know I know you will be like, oh my gosh, this is my favorite author. I read all of her books. And I'm like, are you messing with me? Because you know that I know her or is this like genuine? And they're like, oh my God, I had no idea that you know her. Her books are just so incredible. 
Oh, I love that. And tell them thank you on my behalf. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, likewise, it's been, you were already a star when I knew you, but it's just been so fun watching such amazing stuff happen with um, your recipe development, your brand, your smoothie stuff, your <laughs> podcast, like you are just such a rock star. And I'm just so honored to be asked on. Well, thank you. Okay. So let's start at the beginning. This is going to be all about like how to get your dream job, what the behind the scenes are of these dream jobs that we kind of pedestalize as society. So going back to the beginning, when did you first know that you wanted to be a writer? It's such a great question. And I, when I was little, I apparently, I found a diary not too long ago where in the beginning there was a questionnaire and it was like, you know, my favorite song, my best friend, the great I'm in, whatever. <laughs> and one of them was like what I'm going to be when I grow up. And I wrote author. And wow. so apparently even when I was little, this was a dream of mine. Um, you know, I loved reading. I loved like writing poetry and making little short stories and that kind of thing. And then in high school, I think I started to get more practical and, you know, the writing was sort of a fun thing on the side. And then in college, I discovered journalism and I discovered magazine editing in particular, and I just loved it and set this new goal, completely forgot about the writing bit. And I was like, I'm going to be one of those editors in chief who's in their twenties. And that became my new goal. So arbitrary, so random, but, um, yeah, so I sort of like hardcore pursued magazine editing for a while and forgot about it. And then, you know, I graduated in 2008. And so to make a long story short, like I did get to work at a number of really great magazines, but they were all sort of like collapsing underneath me. It was mm. like that scene in an action movie when like, you know, they're like <laughs> jumping from like one rock to another and the rocks like exploding as they leave it. Yeah. And um, so towards the end of that, I just decided to start writing fiction, working on a, a book project uh, for me so that I could have something that like no one could take away from me and that, you know, couldn't randomly explode like a rock I'm standing on. <laughs> Weird metaphor. <laughs> it's so interesting. So I have a lot of follow-up questions about that. Like one, do you think of the magazine in, cause you still write not a lot, but like occasionally for magazines, do you think it is you know, a, a post-disaster pile of rubble now? Or do you think it's finding its footing in a different way? Or what do you think about the magazine industry at present? God, it's a huge question. On the one hand, I think it's, I think that magazines are still doing amazing stuff. There's still great content coming out of them. But I'm such an old soul. And I love that like print product and the feel yeah. of a matte paper, you know, matte paper in my hands. And I mean, to give you the very quick overview, I worked at Glamour, Self, Fit Pregnancy, Natural Health, um, Martha Stewart's Whole Living. None of those is in print anymore. Not one. Wow. Actually, Fit Pregnancy sort of got restarted by a different publisher, but it folded while I was there. So the track record's not great. <laughs> You're really yeah. a print lover. But I think, you know, different journalistic outlets are doing interesting things and um hopefully you know magazines as an idea aren't going to go anywhere but I just think that that idea of the glamorous I was in love with the idea of like the glamorous yeah. editor-in-chief with the town car yeah. and the housing allowance yeah. and like that is done that's gone that doesn't exist anymore I think a lot of the I mean there's still like a lot of perks I think in editorial mm -hmm. particularly if you just like free stuff. Um, but like free totally. little stuff, not like free big stuff. But like if you want all of the free skincare you could ever want, I think that still exists. But there aren't the same perks you'd see in like the Devil Wears Prada anymore. Exactly. Like that era has ended. And I, I came in, you know, I interned in like 
2006 at Condé Nast and I still saw it. I sound, I saw the waiting town car. And by the time I actually entered the workforce in 2008, it was like, you know, one second before a hiring freeze. And like, it was like first they came for our, you know, expensive lunches and then they came for our this and that. And like, it just, you know, it doesn't look, it doesn't look the same way that, that I perceived in the mid-2000s. And I can't even imagine what it was like in sort of the heyday of Condé Nast. Oh my God, I can't even imagine. Before our time. (laughs) No, I literally can't even imagine. So if somebody is listening and their dream job was editorial, what, is there anything that you would tell them in terms of pursuing that as a career path? I would definitely say to be flexible with um, what editorial might mean. Um, I've worked with a lot of people who I went through so many foldings that I became like the Sherpa. I was like the sort of like wise (laughs) sage who was like, you'll be fine. Little editorial assistants who are panicking. (laughs) You know, you're going to land on your feet. You're smart and scrappy. And there were people who just held, you know, talk about pedestalizing stuff. People held print magazines as like, the thing. And they were like, I don't want to work in digital. I don't want to work in content for a brand. Like print is just where my heart is. Um, and one by one I watched as they gave that up and went somewhere else and just absolutely loved it and learned so much. And I think there's definitely opportunities to, for example, work uh, in content for a brand where you might actually have more of that quote unquote glamorous experience, at least in the sense that you're going to have big budgets and can pursue really interesting and meaningful pieces that, um, you know, might not be something that you can do at, at print products anymore because the budgets are shrinking. And also like digital, a lot of people were scared of digital and then they would get into it and they would just love like the quick pace and the the, you know, instant feedback and being able to look at numbers and like do interactive stuff and hear from readers right away. So I would just say like, figure out what it is you love about editorial and, and sort of have an open mind for how you might be able to sort of fulfill those goals in, you know, in your job or outside of your job. I totally love that advice. I think that especially the brand side, I think people feel like to work for a brand is selling out. But I think it's it's I mean it can be. It depends on the brand for sure. sure. But I do think that it it you get you have a salary that you can live on usually if you work for a brand, which is not true in many editorial jobs. And yes. um I think you can have like a lot of creative freedom too. So I think that's really uh good advice. One of the coolest things that I think you do, which you know this already because I, I picked your brain about it um, aggressively, uh, is travel writing. I think travel writing is like one of those dream, dream gigs where you're just like, wait, so I can get free trips to places and then get to like tell the stories of these places. And I also think it's really cool how you've had your travel writing now influence, or I assume it influenced We Were Never Here. Like you can see this, it, it almost feels like, you took a travel piece and mixed it in with like a thriller murder. Threw in murder some dead thing. bodies. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm 30 pages in and a lot of people have died already. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> which I Absolutely. hope is not true on your normal trips. But how did the travel writing get started? So I had worked in editorial for six or eight years, something like that. And I was laid off from my position. I was at the Pregnancy and Natural Health as the number two editor. And so I thought that like all the times before, I would just freelance for a little bit while I applied for jobs and then I would go somewhere new. And um, little did I know that that would be my last full-time job for at this point, five plus years. 
And it's because, you know, at that level, it's, there's just fewer jobs. Like I, there was just a smaller sort of pool to pick from. And I was picky about, I'm not going to take a step back in my you know title. I'm not going to be a senior editor after I was a senior editor at three places and then be worked up to being a deputy editor. So basically I wound up freelancing for, for a career that was a mix of writing for magazines and writing for brands and doing some freelance editing and consulting and a whole mix of things. And at the same time, I was traveling as much as I could because I had the sort of ability to. I was self-employed. I could work from anywhere. Um, I started dating somebody who lived in, in France. And so I was back and forth with him or we would go on trips together. And it was just a passion of mine. And it was like this sort of aha, actually duh moment when I was like, wait, I should be like writing about travel instead of like doing it and freelancing. And so I started working really hard on like the networking piece of it because I didn't really have any connections in um, the travel writing space yet. And I started, you know, figuring out who the editors were, um, reaching out, connecting with them on social media or via email, studying the publications, um, all the kind of basic, you know, one-on-one stuff for, for, you know, breaking into any kind of freelancing and um, I was really lucky. I landed a couple pieces right around the same right around the same time that were in pretty prestigious outlets. One was um, Wall Street Journal, and one was Vogue.com. And so when they came out, I think it was the same week. These two travel pieces, like suddenly all the PR people in the world uh, began reaching out. That you know, with different destinations and ideas and stories, and you need to know about this hotel. You won't believe what's happening in this city. Um, and so, you know, then I started meeting with them and getting lunch with them and discussing ideas. And so, it really was my focus for the last few years. And um, I was traveling a ton. COVID obviously has, has shut that down for the time being. And it's it's it is a dream job. Absolutely, I love it. I miss it. I. Um, just had some of these experiences that it was like, I cannot believe this is my life. I am like on, you know, a beautiful Zodiac zipping around like a lake in Italy, sipping champagne, like, does it get any better than this? Um, probably sipping Prosecco. And there's absolutely moments of that. But I, I also, people don't like to hear this. And so I don't say it in any sort of ungrateful way. Um, but it is extremely different from being paid to go on vacation. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize that like destinations don't want to, you know, lose. So while you're there, you're not, you're probably not paying to stay at these hotels or do some of these activities. So it's expensive for whoever's hosting you, which every once in a while it's the outlet that pays you. But most of the time it's, um, a, a property or a destination like a city. So they want you to pack to be there as short a time as possible and for you to do as much as you possibly can while you're there so that they, they feel like you're getting a ton of stuff to write about. So it basically works out. I mean, to give you an example, I went to Uganda for six days. It was maybe the most incredible trip of my life, but we did essentially a three-week itinerary in six days. Whoa. And it's, it's nuts. It's, it's work and it's very different from being on vacation where you can kind of sleep in and do whatever you want and, and, you know, make, make changes on the fly to your itinerary. And there's been a few times that I've been able to invite, um, a plus one. And so I've brought a friend 
And literally, Liz, every time I've done this, by the end of the trip, the friend and the friend does not have the same requirements as me. They are they are chilling by the pool while I am doing yet another hotel tour or watching a presentation or schmoozing with, you know, schmoozing with people from the, the you know local tourism bureau. Even then, by the end of the trip, they're like, oh, I don't want your job. I take it back. Um, I would not want to do this. I just want to, you know, go on vacations when I want to go on vacation, do whatever I want to do. And um, that's, that's not what travel writing is. So I think it's incredible and really fun if it's a passion of yours. And if you're willing to sort of sacrifice like self-care basically to, to do this and to see places. Um, but it is, yeah, mentally and physically and honestly, emotionally exhausting. You're often, you're on these really intense uh, tours and itineraries with other people you haven't chosen. Sometimes you don't get along. Um, sometimes, you know, there's there's politics of if you try to skip one part of it, then you can, you know, sort of get on the bad side of an important um, PR contact. Or it's it's a lot that make it very different from going on vacation. All that said, I for me, it's a hundred percent worth it personally. You mentioned that the hotels or the, you know, tourism board or whatever is usually the one footing the bills for this. I think people don't really understand. So like they read an article about what was the Uganda article and what did that end up being about? So I ended up doing a handful of different articles um, about Uganda. I did a couple for Vogue.com about, you know, new beautiful resorts to stay in, um, about, you know, what to do in the cities while you're there. And then I also had a few different angles that I worked into different articles. I mean, if you do a big trip like that, you are kind of expected to uh, produce these articles afterward that um, are in prestigious enough outlets that give them enough ink. Um, and it's it's also this some sort of like weight on your shoulders afterward where like the PR people mm-hmm. are kind of like, we just spent, you know, yeah. $20,000 on you. Like, when is it coming? When are we going to see results? So when you usually do a trip, do you usually like come up with a destination? Like I want to go to, I remember you went to like Georgia at one point, like Mm -hmm. I want to go to Georgia and then will you sort of reach out to your PR network or is it usually somebody, a hotel, a brand is pitching you and then you go and then figure out a way to incorporate that hotel or that brand into some piece for some outlet? How, How does the story take place and how does sort of the structure of the trip take place? I think it's different for, it's, it's kind of, it can be all of the above. Um, but these different situations have happened and I've even had the case, the rare case where I, you know, have a conversation with the PR team and get a great idea out of it. And I place that idea with an outlet and then maybe the outlet is putting part of the bill or I, I get to go somewhere because like in order to report this story, but much more common is that, um, the outlet or excuse me, the outlet's not involved until after I'm back from the trip. And so it's like the hotel uh, or something like that will pitch me and say like, oh, we're, you know, we're either planning a group trip to, I don't know, Switzerland or, you know, and here are the dates or uh, this destination or this property is looking to host journalists on assignment. Um, would you be interested in coming out sometime this fall? And yeah, so most of the time I go and I experience it, and from that I get my ideas, and then I am able to go home and pitch like crazy. And it's really a gamble on the you know PR team's side that um, they're they're hoping something will come out of it, and I won't stop until I have, have placed an assignment. Essentially, I kind of become a PR person. 
you know, on the other end and it can be really stressful and there can be times just no one is getting back to me. And, um, you know, I, I want to write a good story. I don't want to just, you know, throw something onto like a blog that doesn't pay and that doesn't have any prestige. Um, and then occasionally, um, either because the destination requires it or I just have a really great idea without even seeing the place. I will, I will be on assignment, quote unquote, um, where I'll have pitched something to an editor uh, and they've said, yes, um, they, they, they call it a guaranteed assignment, even though like nothing is guaranteed, you know, this in journalism, like at any moment that editor could like quit or be fired and then I would be in hot water. <laughs> but they say like, yes, we like this idea. You can go write it. And then I'm sort of like reporting that while I'm actually out there. Have you ever been somewhere and been like, I don't have any ideas for like a, a new unique take on this place. Like yes. what should I possibly write about? Yes. And it's a horrible feeling. Yes. And I, I think from that I've gotten, I've learned to get more picky about like what I'll say yes to, because if it's, you know, for example, like Paris or something. Yes, yeah. I was going to say, I'm going to Iceland in a few weeks um, with my girlfriend, like, on on vacation and several people have been like oh are you also going to do travel writing and I'm like you think anybody wants a pitch on Iceland right now like that place got big years ago and so you know for me to try to find something new to say about it every travel editor at an outlet is going to be like nah everyone knows about Iceland nothing new and exciting there yeah do you what do you do if you've like been on a if you're like sitting on the boat drinking Prosecco in Italy have you been on trips where you've sort of like agreed to this deal and not been able to come up with anything? Um, oh gosh, probably. There's one trip I took shortly before COVID that I just, oh my God, like bless them. They haven't been harassing me too much, but it involved a cruise and like nobody wants to talk about cruises right now. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and so I'm just, there is, you know, I try to make the argument too. Like there is this like long game where I, I fairly recently wrote something about Uganda, even though it was four plus years ago that I was there. Mm -hmm. Like it just, I was writing a piece and it perfectly fit in. So there is sort of this long tail of like, um, you know, you never know when it's going to become, when it's going to come in handy, but Yes, that is something that is keeping me up at night and probably will will show up in my stress dreams tonight. So thank you for that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, I just, I do think it's like, like, especially if a hotel or something pays you to go somewhere and then you're like, this hotel sucks, you know? And you're just like, well, how am I? Because you're, you're trading on, I think the interesting thing about writing, especially freelance writing is every piece you're writing or pitching, you're trading on the relationships that you've built with other editors. And so you don't want to sacrifice those relationships, you know, in any way by recommending something that their readers wouldn't be excited about or making a piece feel too sponsored, you know? Exactly. And and I think then the challenge can come in. I have had that experience of just like, this was, I did not like this hotel. Like this was just not the place for me. Um, and when that happens, generally what my focus becomes is like, how do I find a really specific angle or niche or way of looking at this that I can write about without feeling like I'm trading it on my, you know, journalistic Mm. expertise. And like, you know, to give an example, there was this hotel in Japan that I just, in Tokyo that I just, um, I just didn't, I I didn't like it. It wasn't in the right area. Everything was via like these iPad touchscreens. And so like, you just wanted to turn on the freaking light and you were like, it was like not connecting. I just was like, I would never tell someone I know to stay here. But it did have this very interesting, like, see-through shower that was, like, in the middle of the room, and you hit a button, and it would become frosted. 
And I was like, I feel like I've started seeing this more and more where there's just like this peekaboo shower. I was there with a friend. And so it was like kind of hilarious that you can be like, okay, don't look. Um, and so I pitched a piece to Vogue.com that was about like the new trend of like peekaboo showers. And I like rounded up some other ones that, um, you know, really exposed you to the room or to the world. And I was able to write about it without sort of specifically like raving about the experience of staying there. Um, Zach and I stayed at a place in Switzerland that had like a peekaboo toilet and we didn't figure out till like day three that you could push a button to make it opaque. And so we would just be like, we would send the other person to like the corner of the room (laughs) whenever we needed to use the bathroom. We'd be like, all right, I'm going to go behind this clear glass door and use the bathroom now. And then on day three, we're like, oh, I understand. (laughs) Why was that a design choice? Like of all the upgrades you could make, who is like, you know what this room needs? It'll be so sexy if you can just see Can't wait for someone to see me when I'm on the toilet. (laughs) So hot, so hot. If somebody was maybe in the place where they feel like they're traveling a lot and they wanted to start pitching like unique strong angles for travel obviously you have so many connections to the editorial world but is there any advice you would give for somebody who maybe isn't taking the press trips but just finds themselves in Uganda and wants to like pitch something cool yeah that's that's actually a really great thing and um some some outlets like the New York Times is known for um they don't really work with writers who uh take press trips because they think it messes with you know your editorial uh, bias, which I have my own opinions about what that means, about who gets to write for the New York yeah. Times travel section and their backgrounds. But regardless, um, absolutely does not need to have been a press trip for you to have discovered a really cool angle. I would just start, I think one of the most important things is to start reading the outlets that you want to pitch. Um, yeah. There's travel magazines, there's Afar, there's Travel and Leisure, Kind of Nest Traveler. Newspapers have travel sections, um, all sorts of online outlets, uh, and just start sort of noticing like what makes a fresh and unique story. I think the mistake a lot of people make when they first try to get into travel writing is that they just want to write like guides or they just want to say like, here's what to do in Austin, Texas. And like, there is a value in that, but like, that's not going to be fresh and new and unique and interesting enough. So look for trends, look for um, stuff that's like brand new, look for stuff that, you know, you're noticing that could be a destination, but that no one but local newspapers has really written about yet. Maybe you'd be able to write about it for, you know, a wider audience. And um, yeah, so really, really read the outlets that you want to pitch. If you've never pitched something before, there's like amazing resources online for sort of how to, you know, craft a pitch and what it should look like. You want to look professional. And yeah, I think social media is a really awesome way to connect, like find, first of all, and connect with editors who often have pitch guidelines. So, I mean, a really simple thing is just like go to Twitter and search for the outlet and pitch me and you'll very frequently find um, an editor who even has their email right there in their bio or in the tweet. And yeah, just start sort of getting ready for a rejection, which is also a big part of it. I also know some people who just start a blog for, for travel and it's not necessarily going to blow up. It's not necessarily going to like get them invited on press trips. Um, it's, I mean, you are the first to know it's like a huge endeavor to actually make that, you know, your big thing, but, uh, it can be really helpful for just demonstrating to the editor. Like, look, this is my unedited writing. I'm a good writer. I can express things in a fun way. I have a voice. If you can take photos as well, like look at the photos that I use with my blog, that can really 
make you a more attractive person for them to bring on um, because they won't have to pay for photography separately. So if it's something that you love doing and you're, you're noticing cool stuff anyway, it can just be a smart way to have some sort of clips that an editor can look at and say like, okay, this person kind of knows what they're doing. So you said that you started writing novels like kind of for yourself and as something that people couldn't take away from you. Did you have a sense that this could be a career for yourself that somebody couldn't take away from you or more of a creative thing for yourself that nobody could take away from you? I think it started out as both. I mean, you can't be a professional writer for for years, which I was at that point, without having some feeling of like, when I finish this, I will try to make money off it. I mean, it's already like writing, like, you know, we talk about writing an article on spec and how we hate doing it as freelancers. That's when you write the whole thing before an outlet decides that they'll take it. And like, this is like writing a hundred thousand words on spec <laughs> before you see a time. So it is the most annoying. I don't understand it. Can I do this is like a minor rant, but it is crazy to me that you can sell nonfiction books based on a proposal and that fiction books you have to write the whole thing. I mean, I'm sure you don't anymore, but like for first time authors, certainly you have to write the whole freaking thing before they're willing to buy it. And I'm like, I could certainly write like three chapters in an outline and you could decide if you wanted this, you know? Totally, totally. It's so it's nuts. And it's just it doesn't make sense because an advance is supposed to be the idea with an advance. We're giving you an advance so that you have money to live on while you write this. And yet, for fiction, we just don't do that. And instead, you have to have the immense privilege of, you know, time and and investment to, to do all that up front. So it's, it's, it's nuts. Um, but if you want to go the fiction route and you want to be traditionally published, then yeah, you need to do the entire thing up front. And I think I was doing it for me, but I also had a pretty, I had friends who were published authors. And so that was like part of the motivation. I saw other people doing it. So it didn't feel like this totally unachievable thing to see myself, you know, getting an agent, getting a book deal, working with an actual publisher. But you can't, I I felt like you can't really be so worried about that when you're writing it. I mean, one of the best pep talks I got uh, from my friend Leah Conan, who is a uh, thriller writer and writes really awesome thrillers and wrote a lot of young adult before that. She gave me this pep talk early on when I just started The Lost Night and I was having this crisis of confidence because I was like, you know, I'm writing about like hipsters and people hate hipsters and like no one's going to buy this book and like why would anyone want to read this? And she was like, listen take off your editor hat, take off your will to sell hat, take off your every other hat and just write. The only thing you can do is write. None of this can be discussions that you have until after you've written the entire thing. And she was a hundred percent right. So I feel like that's a pep talk I've given in so many forms to so many people. So yes, you, if this is something that you plan to take in that direction, then it is smart to have some sense of like, what does it, what does it take to sell a book? And that's a question that really means what does it take to write um, a book that, you know, succeeds on a plot and character level that um, falls neatly ish within a genre. Um, Those sorts of things, I think it's going to have in the back of your mind as you're nailing down an idea, but you cannot get too bogged down in that when you're just supposed to be writing because until you've written the entire book, none of those things matter. You're listening to the healthier together podcast. When Zach and I started Healthy Convo Co., we needed to find the easiest way to get conversation cards from our warehouse onto our website and into your hands. 
I thought it was going to be the hardest part of starting a business, but it wound up being one of the easiest because we just use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling gorgeous ceramics to sip morning tea from or beautiful journals to write prompts from the we're all in this together deck in, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. I know as a consumer, I'm way more likely to buy when a website has Shopify. It has all of my information saved, so checkout becomes a one-click situation, even on small business sites, which makes me so happy because I love shopping small. But it's not just small. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lizm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Liz M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Liz M. I get asked all of the time about which CBD brands I recommend. And honestly, I have like two or three companies reach out every week asking to work together. But I wanted to find a brand that I really loved and could stand behind before recommending it to you guys, which is why I am so excited to share Kyoto Botanicals with you. Kyoto Botanicals has a few incredibly important things going for them. They own and operate their hemp supply chain from seed to bottle and hand produce every bottle they sell to deliver products with unmatched consistency and quality. They believe that every single ingredient matters and should contribute to your overall health, which is why they only use USDA certified organic oils to deliver flavor with benefits. Their products only have organic, single-source plant extracts, not lab-developed flavors and colors, so you get whole plant benefits as nature intended. Finally, their hemp is grown according to strict organic and biodynamic standards, and they only use organic coconut MCT oil as a carrier. They have a few different products, but my favorite ones are their tinctures. The Breathe one is lemon ginger flavored, and it helps ease mild anxiety caused by everyday stresses, promotes a sense of calm, and it helps with digestion thanks to the ginger. The warmth one has cinnamon and turmeric to help manage inflammation caused by an active day and to help reduce exercise-induced inflammation. Finally, the restful one is minty, and it helps to promote relaxation and support healthy sleep patterns. My personal favorite way to take the tincture is to put a few drops under my tongue and let it sit for about 30 seconds before swallowing. That way, the most active compounds get straight into your body. They always have free shipping, which I love, and then you can get a whopping 25% off your order by visiting kyotobotanicals.com and using the code Healthier Together, like the name of this podcast. Again, that's K-Y-O-T-O-B-O-T-A-N-I-C-A-L-S, kyotobotanicals.com, and the code is Healthier Together. I cannot wait for you to try these. They are truly going to change your life. Now, let's get back to the episode. 
So in those early days when you were sort of I you were writing the last night I remember when you were at MBG were you sort of like part-time freelancing part-time noveling? Yeah, exactly. So I think I actually started it when I was still at the Pregnancy and Natural Health. Uh, we had one staff doing two magazines. So I was working on it with in in fall 2014, and then a friend was like, hey, why don't we do NaNoWriMo together? That's National oh, Model Writing Month, November, when a bunch of people sign up online and commit to writing 50,000 words in a month, which is about half of a full-length novel, two-thirds to a half. And... So I was like, yeah, let's do it. It works out to, I think, about 1,700 words a day. And I did it. And I was so proud of myself at the end. I had 50,000 words. And there was just sort of some mental, some psychological, like, sub-cost fallacy that kicked on where I was like, well, I can't stop working on this now. I've, like, done so Mm. much work already. I've already invested, like, all these hours and I have 50,000 words. I felt like I was, you know, like, two-thirds of the way to the finish line when in reality I was like, on step two out of like 8 million. Um, but you know, sometimes you need to like fool yourself and lie to yourself to, to do crazy <laughs> things like write a novel. So, so yeah, I kept working on it from there. I first had another freelance job and they, uh, a freelance, yeah, it was a freelance editing job at Hearst. And they were like, you could either work three days a week, or you could do two weeks on, two weeks off. And I was like, ooh, let's do two weeks on, two weeks off so that I can really focus on my novel in the other times, you know, in the the off weeks, in addition to my freelancing. And then, you know, I just kind of did my best to keep moving forward and set, like, artificial deadlines for myself so that, um, because without them, I would never actually accomplish anything. (laughs) And it's still, which is still absolutely true, I have so many fake deadlines on my calendar. Um, just to get stuff done. But yeah, so I was just sort of balancing it um, with freelance writing and setting these arbitrary goals of like, by, you know, Thanksgiving, I want to have this draft done. Like by this date, I want to have it sent to my beta readers, um, who just other friends who are also writers. And um, yeah, I just kept doing that. And I think when I was at Mind Body Green, I was getting into the querying stage. Yeah, I think you were querying. Yeah, so I had already worked on it for about two years at that point. Um, and Liz, I don't know that I ever told you this, but I basically have you to thank for the fact that I got an agent because you told me to send you my query and you forwarded it to a friend who's an agent. And that that agent was like, oh, this isn't for me, but there's a new agent at my agency uh, who might be interested. And she forwarded it to her and she read it, loved it, was like, got me on the, got me on the phone and was like, I would love to represent you. And once you've gotten that one offer, you can go back to everyone else that you've queried and say, you know, Hey, I have an offer on the table, but as a professional courtesy, I'd be happy to give you another week if if you'd like to, you know, check if you want to throw your name into the ring. And so I very much have you to thank because I was able to kind of shake the tree pretty quickly um, and I had a few offers of representation come out of that, um, and, and started working with my agent from that. So yeah, I don't think cool. I ever really like fully no. thanked you for that. No, that's awesome. I'll take, um, royalty checks if, okay. if you're, you know, <laughs> interested in that, you can track me down wherever I am that month and, um, you know, <laughs> introduce me to Reese Witherspoon. That's fine. Um, The artificial deadline thing is interesting to me because I think people have different stances on 
creativity and whether you make it happen or you try to inspire it happening or you wait for it to happen or that. So I'm just like, I'm curious what your take is. Like, do you sit down and force creativity to come every day or is there something you do to inspire it or do you wait for it? I feel so strongly that creativity is a habit and it's a muscle that you exercise. I feel this so strongly. If I waited until I was inspired, I would just never write. I would never complete books. I would never complete a scene, let alone entire books, let alone four, (laughs) which is, you know, the number that I have now written. Um, And I think for me, um, getting stuff done means setting these artificial deadlines, or in this case, now they're real deadlines. Now I have actual, like, a date. You know, the editor gives me a date nine months in the future that I need to deliver a manuscript to her. And so then I work backwards. Okay. I know I need this much time for my own revisions. I know I need this much time for my beta readers to read it. Work backwards, work backwards, set a date that I need to complete the first draft. And then I, um, I use this free site called pacemaker.co and, uh, you basically plug in like your, your goal, whether it's a number of words or a number of pages or whatever. Um, and the due date, and then you can say things like, oh, I want to work less on weekends, or I want to work more on weekends, mm. or I'm going to, um, you know, block out these days to not work because I'll be on vacation or whatever. And then it gives you your, your like, writing prescription every day. So in my case, it's like the number of however many hundreds of words I need to write every day uh, is spit out. And for me, my, my job is um, to sit my butt in my seat and um, I the way that I do it was with the Pomodoro method. So I set a timer for 20 minutes and without distractions, I write. And sometimes I write complete trash and sometimes I am so stuck on a scene that I have to open up my, uh, open up another document. I'm keeping like a sort of running journal diary of uh, free writing and I'll jump over to that and I'll start to write. I am so stuck on the scene what the hell mm-hmm. is this character doing? Why is she da da da? And and I'll you know that still counts. That's still part of my twenty minutes because my fingers are moving on the keyboard. And I just until the timer goes off for twenty minutes, I am writing. And I you know twenty minutes when twenty minutes is up, I take a five or ten minute break, and then I just repeat that process until I hit the daily work count goal. And you know I think there's other you know people can don't need to do it the exact same way. And, and, um, I really respect a lot of people do like, you know, 20 or 30 minutes of writing every morning first thing. Uh, so it's less about the word count and it's more about the, um, the time that they put in. And I think that's a really valuable way to do it too, especially if you're, um, you know, especially if you're just working away on like your first manuscript and don't have these outside deadlines yet. But, um, you know, doing the work, sort of inspires, you know, sort of creates this inspiration because when you're actually in a scene that all these ideas are coming and we have this idea that, you know, you need to start on the inspiration side, but actually it's a circle and putting in that time will also feed back into making you feel inspired. So, you know, you create inspiration by sitting down. Um, maybe you have a little ritual around it. I always like to like light a candle and that means it's writing time and I've got my coffee next to me and, and, you know, there's, there's something to sort of drop into that space, but actually moving your fingers on the keyboard, I promise you will inspire you to know what to say. It's, it's kind of an incredible thing. It reminds me of, I forget her last name, but Emily, something she wrote, she comes first, um, which is like a sex book. And she, she basically said that like 
70% of women think that they're supposed to be like innately turned on out of nowhere and then want to have sex, but most women need to start having sex and then the desire comes from starting to have sex. And I feel like you're almost describing creativity in the same way. Like we wait for this like flashing you know, oh my gosh, aha moment, but actually you need to start doing the action. And then the aha moment comes from doing that action. Yes. Emily Nagoski, non-spontaneous arousal. You're speaking my language. (laughs) Snap, snap. I love her. And I never thought about that connection, but you're absolutely right. Like it's not any less legit or like, you know, heaven sent um, if it's not spontaneous. Like, you know, it's, it's still, it can be totally thrilling, you know, and like you can still have great sex, even if you weren't just spontaneously aroused and like, you know, super into it before anything started happening. Like, I think it's a very similar, um, it's a very similar process and we should think about writing as orgasms. Love it. <laughs> I'm I'm curious because so I think that one of the biggest things that, that gets in the way of creating creative work is our self-critic. And I think that procrastination in general is a result of perfectionism and not having your output match what you want it to be in your brain. And then so you then you don't do anything at all. You're like, oh, if I can't write the novel I want to write, if I can't paint the painting I want to write, if I can't or paint, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm just not gonna create something. I'm curious how you silence your self-critic. Yeah. Yeah. There's that really amazing Ira Glass clip that I think a lot of people have heard where he talks about how like, if you're a creative person, like you probably have taste, but you might not have like the talent yet. So it's really frustrating because the stuff that you're creating doesn't live up to the level of taste that, you know, would, would please you. And it's frustrating and it can be paralyzing. I mean, one thing I'll say about procrastination before I answer your question, which is a great one, is uh, I used to work at Psychology Today, and it's the one magazine I worked at that is still in print. But procrastination is like completely universal. Everyone thinks that they're a procrastinator. Everyone thinks that it's Mm. like a unique problem to them. And it's actually just how humans do everything. So just store that one away that the next time you're beating yourself up for quote unquote procrastinating, like you and absolutely everyone is like, wait, it feels like you're waiting until the last minute to do things. It's just wait. How- so is that, if the fact that it's universal makes me what, is there like some sort of evolutionary advantage to it? Is that just like a glitch or malfunction in our human brains? You know, that I don't know, but I feel like it's probably not as it's, it's sort of like, um, it's kind of like the idea of imposter syndrome. And like, I don't know how, how, deep you want to go on this, but imposter syndrome makes me actually really infuriated when people start talking about it because the researchers who coined the term in, I think it was the seventies or maybe the eighties, they recanted it because once they did more research, they realized that it was not universal. A it's a it's hundred percent universal. It's not just women. It's not just young women. It's not, it's not a syndrome at all. It's not anything yeah. wrong with you. It's just being a human. It's just part of the human condition. Um, mm. And so I think it's sort of silly that we, we have to like, you know, uh, pathologize it and act like it's this terrible thing that we need to like get over or fix. What if it's just, what if like the ones we need to worry about are the ones who don't have imposter syndrome? Because they're the no, weirdos think, when this is, you know. hundred percent. I think that's totally true. And I also, I love telling people like about all of my friends that, you know, outwardly have dream jobs and, and appear so successful. And like, they still think everybody feels like they're 
kind of playing the role of their job and playing the role of a yes. grown up like every day. Like, oh, I'm going to yes. like wake up and pay taxes. It's like, what? Or people taking care of kids. They're like, somebody let me do this. Like, who? <laughs> Who allowed this? And I think everybody, everybody has. I do not know one person. And I know a lot of like crazy, phenomenally successful people who from the outside, you're like, oh my God. But like, I don't know one person who doesn't have imposter syndrome. Or I guess you can't even say that if so, because I'm pathologizing it. That's funny. Who, who doesn't question whether they, you know, are in the position to be doing what they're doing? Like who let them do this? Right. Right. We're all just like fake adulting. Like we're all fake. All adulting. of it's so nuts. I'm in the process of like buying a home right now. And like every step of the way, I'm like, I will learn the, the exact next three inches I need to go. <laughs> like someone will tell 100%. me, I'll ask a lot of people questions and then I guess I'll schedule an inspection. Who's letting me do this? <laughs> it's very silly. But anyway, I think that was a tangent on a tangent to go one tangent back. I think procrastination I don't know if it's a good thing or bad thing, whatever. I just think we should all be kinder to ourselves about the fact that we're procrastinating because literally everyone is doing it. It's not like you uniquely are like bad or unproductive or, you know, Mm -hmm. worthless because you still have not done that thing that, you know, needs to happen eventually. You will. If it's important, you will. But to get back to the original question, Remind me what the original question was. How do you... How you silence your own self-critic. Like how you... Mm. Even when you're producing work that's crap and you're like, this is crap, you continue to still do it. Yeah. It's it's still a battle. It's still a battle I fight when I'm writing and I just... A sentence comes out of my fingers and I am like, that is like the stupidest sentence that <laughs> literally has ever been written. Like I didn't know I could write this badly until I started writing fiction I thought of myself as a pretty good writer. I thought I kind of had some hold on on dialogues and scenes. And I started writing and I was horrified by some of the things that came out of my fingers on a laptop. And I think like all different forms of shame, I felt shame around it. And what helped was sort of bringing it out into the light and talking to other people Mm. about their experiences. There is not a writer on earth who won't tell you that like, parts of their first draft are terrible. Nobody gets it right on the first draft. And the whole point is just to get something written so that um, you can make it shine later. And so now, especially I'm, I'm, you know, we were never here as my third book and I'm working hard on revising my fourth. I have this really nasty tendency to compare where a book is now to my published books Um, and not that they're, not that they're perfect, but like, even I, who has seen every step of the process, look at the current Google document for book four. And I'm like, God, this sucks, especially compared to we were never here, this hardcover sitting Mm. next to me. And I have to very consciously remind myself like, no, when you sent the first draft of we were never here to your beta readers, they, they, and you, I knew it. We're like, this is a hot mess. And it took a ton of work, but I was capable of doing it and I'll, I'll do it again. So I think, you know, little mental tricks, like reminding yourself, no one needs to see this, but you, um, that's where stuff like having just board count goals or time goals can really help because like, you can't sit there and agonize over every sentence. You know, you're going to change it later. You're just trying to get something down. That can be really helpful. Just reading you know, looking at interviews or going on writing Twitter where literally everybody is talking about how awful their first drafts are and how they at times absolutely hate and loathe the things that they have written. The 
that revision process. There's lots of great essays out there about like, you know, when you're revising, you go, you swing back and forth between thinking your book is brilliant and thinking it's the worst thing that's ever been made. It's just normal. It's normal. It's normal. It's normal. It's part of the human condition. It is going to happen. There's a 0% chance that like you will think that what you just wrote is great. Um, and so just kind of going into it with that attitude and I kind of am laughing sometimes as I'm writing these like melodramatic, awful, awful lines and just, yeah, having, knowing that going in and having the sort of kindness towards yourself and towards your work and kind of a playfulness, I think just allows you to keep writing. And then there will be parts that when you write them, you're like, that was good. That felt really good writing that scene. And then there will be parts that when you're writing them, you're like, this is just agonizing and every sentence is hard for me to come up with and I don't know what's happening and I know that this writing is bad and like just that's going to be part of the journey too and like the only way to get sort of like the only way out is through like the only way to get past the scene is to finish writing this freaking scene Mm -hmm. and then move on to the next one and hope that it goes a little more smoothly um so I think it's just a lot of practice and a lot of just like recognizing that that self-judgment you know my, my therapist always talks about parts therapy, like thank that part of you, that part of you cares, it, that sort of inner mm. critic uh, is looking out for you. It wants mm. to help you. It wants you to not be shamed. It wants you to not be embarrassed. Um, it's speaking up because it has your best interests at heart, but you know, it's not doing any good and you can just reassure it. Like, you know, babe, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let the world see this. This is just for me. This is just going to live on this word document here. I'll fix it later. Um, you know, and, and much like my therapist has encouraged me to give my anxiety, like picture it as like a little, little personality, um, and, and kind of speak back to it gently and kind of like, Oh, anxiety. Like, I know you have my best interest at heart, but like, I don't need you, babe. We got this. Um, I I think, yeah, it could be helpful to do the same with your self critic and, and even ask like, what's another job I can give this self critic that's so eager. What else, Hmm. what else would you like to do? You know, what else would you like to, what else would you like to take on as an assignment? That's interesting. So what would be like an example of something else it could take on? Um, let me think about that because I've done it for anxiety, but let me think about this. Okay. So this part of you that is really, you know, worried about your own work. Um, maybe that part would like to spend some time looking at other stuff of yours that you've written. Maybe it would like to go seek out stories of, uh, authors talking about their own revision process. Um, maybe that part would just like to focus on, you know, reading stuff that is bad, but that you loved or like, you know, watching, just coming up with stuff that, you know, wasn't awesome, but that was awesome. (laughs) You know? Yeah. It's just, just, it's just a mental exercise, obviously, but there is something nice about imagining that energy and sort of the, the quality of it. And then saying like, how can we transmute this part, this voice, um, Mm. and, and give it a new job so that it still feels productive because it is just trying to help me and protect me. I love that. I love that so much. I'm going to try it with my anxiety too, because I love, I love that idea. I think I need to be kinder to my anxiety parts of myself. Mm -hmm. Um, and I love that generally. Okay. I want to talk about some of the like 
outwardly glamorous things. So like your newest book, We Were Never Here, it is a New York Times bestseller now. Congratulations on that. That is so crazy. And then it's also a Reese's book club pick. And then your previous book, was it was Lost Night optioned by Mila Kunis's production company or was it um, The Herd? It was The Lost Night that was optioned by Mila Kunis's production company. Okay. So how does this stuff happen? Like, do you just wake up one day and you're like, hey, I'm a New York Times bestseller or like, hey, Reese Witherspoon's on the phone and she'd like to talk to you about your book. Like what is, what's going on behind the scenes for this stuff that seems like really cool and glamorous? It is hilarious to imagine any of it just like falling into the lap, um, falling into my lap. So I, when you have a literary agent, you are sort of assigned a a film agent as well. Um, and so in my case, like my agent is with ICM. And so I got a film agent at ICM as well. Uh, and she's based in Hollywood and her whole job is like reading books and like wheeling and dealing to find people who would like to option them. So she has been behind, um, you know, trying to get all of my, trying to get all of my books, uh, optioned and, I'm never totally clear on to what extent, like, there's scouts, too, for different, um, you know, production companies. And so maybe scouts are discovering stuff. And she's also, you know, taking it out to them. So I'm not totally clear on the logistics of what happens in L.A. Everything out in L.A. is very L.A. to me. Um, (laughs) I'm, like, making big hand gestures, as if you can see, like, out out there. But somehow, uh, yeah, people come to her and say, like, we would like to option this, which means we would like to have the exclusive right to try to get it made into uh, a limited series or a movie or whatever it is that they are optioning it as. Um, and so it sounds super exciting because it is in, you know, you know, in production for TV or whatever, but it's not. Um, so they, for a relatively small amount of money get the exclusive rights to try to do something with it. And it's for a set amount of time. So for like the next year or two years, nobody else can, can try to do anything with it. And tons and tons and tons of things get optioned. Very, 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 very few actually get greenlit and made. Mm. Um, so it's sort of like, you know, you haven't won the lottery, but you've got a ticket. Like it is a step that you would need to get to actually winning, but like the odds are still incredibly small that will, that it will ever happen. Um, Mm. and also I will tell you, this is not something that I normally lead with, but like the Mila Kunis option expired and they did not renew it. They weren't able to do anything with it. So now the last night is like on option. It's just, no one's doing anything with it. Interesting. Yeah. Which doesn't sound super glamorous, but, um, you know, it's part of the game too. Um, and actually all three of my books have been optioned, but none has, had anything come from it yet. Um, yeah. And, you know, you're always hopeful. But. I feel like the We Were Never Here, though, like, I, I feel like once you're New York Times and Reese's Book Club, like, I feel like all of her book club picks get made into movies eventually. Fingers crossed, but honestly, who knows? Um, but yeah, it's it's very possible. Uh, at every step of the way, my, my film agent knows that I'm, like, interested in in learning that side of thing and, like, being a Jessica mm-hmm. Nolan writing screenplays. And so she's, like, pitched me to, you know, be involved in some way. And every time they're like, no. <laughs> they are not super interested in working with writers. And, like, I get it to a certain extent. Like, that's their... I don't have that skill set currently. Why should they, right. you know... But you're like, I could... Yeah, I'm like, I could learn, but they're like, why would we saddle ourselves with you, know, you trying to do it? Um, just like you probably wouldn't hire like a screenwriter to write the novelization of a movie or something. Right. Like, it's fair, totally fair. But yeah, so it is 
super, it's super exciting um, when it's announced. It's super, you know, exciting when you have that initial call. I had the call that Mila Kunis was on early on and she like was talking about my book and that was like top five surreal moments of my life. Yeah, that's crazy. That was super duper nuts. But, um, but yeah, whether or not like I would just hear Meg from Family Guy, like being like, oh, I really love The Lost (laughs) Night. I'd be like, wow, this is my favorite cartoon character. And she's not my favorite cartoon character, but like a cartoon character I know (laughs) is talking to me. Yeah, like a voice on the phone. So weird. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And stuff like stuff like the Reese and the New York Times bestseller. um, Again, I myself am not that involved. Like I do a ton of um, PR stuff that that they allow me to. So for example, as you know, I worked in magazines. So like I'm trying to pitch um, essays to friends mm-hmm. that are editors at different places and to like kind of place related stuff that I can work mentions of the book into, or, um, you know, you and I are friends. So I'm like, Hey Liz, can I send you a copy of the book? And i um, trying to do stuff like that. And in the meantime, you know, the Reese team, the Reese book club team, um, has, I guess, their own scouts, and I have no idea what their actual process is, but um, I I heard that it was my editor who was really instrumental in sort of championing the book and having Mm. it be one that they considered. And my understanding is that, you know, at the very end of the process, they whittle it way down, and then Reese herself makes the final call, which is very cool. Oh, that's cool. That's super cool. Yeah. um, So it's, yeah, pretty fantastic to actually picture her reading it. But um, like she and I never... to talk to her at all or no? No, no. And I will never. And that's for some reason people have this idea of her, like my phone ringing and like ring, ring, it's Reese. Um, Well, I think it's when she, she did on her account, I think like her publicly talking to the camera about how great your book is. And that feels very personal. It's not just like a written out, you know... I love this book. Go read it. It felt like her. She was like, I love this book. I'm talking to the camera about how much I liked it. Yeah, that was probably the most that happened on my launch day. So once so once my editor told me um, that it was going to be the race pick and I was like screaming and crying on the phone, uh, we had to move my publication date from mid-July to August 3rd so that it would align with like their announcement for that day. Oh, like, they interesting. The day that they announce it. And they were like, you can't tell anyone like you can't like if it if it leaks and they'll pick a new pick like you need to not wow. tell anyone. So then of course five hundred people are like, why did your publication date change? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> publishers, am I right? So I was keeping. Did you the tell secret. anybody? I mean, I told I told my girlfriend. Well, my girlfriend was like in. I was here in my the office. And my girlfriend was like one room over in the kitchen. She heard me like screaming and crying and I like burst out of the room and I was like, oh my God, like my book is going to be the August pick for the Reese's Book Club. And like, bless her. She's like a computer scientist. And so she was like, the what pick for what? I was like, oh God. But then once I, I you'd be like screaming and crying and her being like, what's going on? And you'd be like, oh, nothing. Like literally nothing's happening. It's all yeah, top exactly. secret. Yes. <laughs> nothing to see here. No, they're like, you can tell your, yeah, like, you can tell your partner, but like, like, do you not tell anyone else? Um, but yeah, so I had to like explain to her what it is. Like, you know, like Reese, well, Elle Woods. Um, and we, we got there and she, and she was happy for me, but I kept the secret for months and I hate keeping secrets. I'm the worst. And like, meanwhile, people were like, like they couldn't mail out 
um, copies of it ahead of time because they had the reseal on them. Oh. So, you know, people like you, so that for, I was like, like all your editorial copy. pitches and stuff, you're like, oh, I can't like send you a hard copy of this book right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think I actually sent you one of the few I had that it was a sticker and I could peel off the sticker, but most of them it's like printed on. So you might have like a limited edition, free, very limited edition, um, <laughs> hardcover yourself. But yeah, and then I have got connected with their team, which is like the most awesome humans on the planet. It's like this, you know, team in LA that um, makes everything Reese's Book Club related happen. And yeah, the day that the book came out, and I was just on my phone refreshing the like pick party, and then suddenly Reese's face was on my phone, and she was <laughs> holding my book and saying really nice things about it, and I it was sort of out of body. And then, you know, it started, we could tell that it started selling really well because we could watch um, like Amazon ranking and, yeah. and um, you know, the publisher is getting updates from like BookScan and stuff. Um, and so everyone was sort of like, Wednesday, fingers crossed, on Wednesday, next Wednesday, we'll find out if it's uh, a New York Times bestseller. And um, yeah, so I got the very excited call from my agent a week ago to, to let me know it was number three on the hardcover fiction list while I was like in a playground with my friend and her babies, her cute children. Uh, so I was just screaming again in a, in a playground, in a public place. Um, and I mean, yeah, it's been very, it's just been very out of body. Like this is so the thing that I dreamed about as an author for so long. And, um, yeah, it's a very strange feeling and I'm definitely not saying this in a negative way. Like, God, I'm not Mm -hmm. complaining, but it's very strange to sort of be like, I have peeped, like I will never have a launch like this again. Um, Mm. You know, and that's, it's almost like that funny feeling of like, feeling a little sad about how good something is while it's happening. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if like people talk about that in their wedding or something like that, where it's sort of Mm -hmm. like, knowing it's like nostalgic for a moment as you're in it. As it's happening. Exactly. And, you know, I think there is something kind of special to that because it means you're recognizing the specialness of it and not just letting it zoom by. And, and so, yeah, this, this whole month has just been a roller coaster of emotions. And um, I'm just trying to let all of the emotions, you know, exist and be friendly with all of them. And when I do get those little freak out moments of like screaming joy, and like little kids shrieking, to just like, savor those and let those be real as well. Do you have any sense of like, that moment of like, I've seen so many friends publish books and it's like what they've wanted to do their whole lives. And then they publish their book and it's great, but like nothing, not everything changes in the way that you expect. Like it's these things you put up on a pedestal is like, when this happens, my life will be good. Or when this happens, I'll feel successful. And then it happens and you have to question whether that assumption was, was true. I'm wondering if you've experienced anything like that. No, that's absolutely app that perfectly captures it I mean it's like wherever you go there you are um Mm. I'm in a very strange place right now too because I was single for most of my 20s um and most of my 30s and now I'm in um a serious relationship and my girlfriend moved in with me this summer and um she's super duper awesome but it's like you know when you're when you when you catch the clock at 11, 11, or you blow out a birthday candle, like for a long time, it was like, I just really want a good relationship. I just really want a partner. 
that. And once that happened, I was like, okay, I guess I need to switch now. And it was like, okay, I really want a bestseller. I just like really want a book that, you know, reaches people and takes off and like, you know, really makes that makes my career kind of set in a new way. And now it's happening. And now if I see a clock at 11, 11, I'm like, oh man, now I just hope I don't get hit by a truck. I hope you know. Like, <laughs> what becomes the new thing? And mm. it's, it is genuinely incredible. And I remember having this feeling as a magazine editor as well, when like I would, you know, get my dream job. I'm a senior editor at Glamour or I did, you know, I did get to fill in for the editor in chief uh, at my last job where I was the deputy while she was on mat leave. And it was great, but it's sort of like, I still like, you know, need to remember to take my laundry to the local laundromat. And I Mm -hmm. still am like in a constant battle with like my gym over the changing rates and like, all of the day-to-day stuff uh, is very much still there. And I still have all of my same inner demons and I still struggle with anxiety and I still struggle with, you know, the need for, for validation. And I still, you know, none of these things went away. The, um, the, the, what we are not calling imposter syndrome, like did not, has not disappeared by any means. So, and then especially right now, then I have a tendency to feel guilty for, yeah, not being anything but ecstatic over all the amazing stuff happening. And and then the voice creeps in of like, well, then maybe you don't even deserve it because look, you're not even uh. happy. Uh, and this whole question of worthiness and, um, and, and yeah, deserving. Um, so there's just a lot of, yeah, this, this feeling you're describing of like, this was the goal and now I've reached it. I think a lot of, it's really easy to, not savor it and to just immediately like focus on a new goal or set the bar higher or uh, feel depressed that you've reached this thing and uh, your whole life didn't change. Like the post-publication blues is a really common thing that authors talk Mm. about where your book is out pretty quickly. You know, you get a lot of accolades and then the world moves on because every Tuesday a whole new slate of books comes out and um, you're just sort of still you. So you know, there's things I'm working on. I'm really trying to um, sort of cultivate a gratitude practice. And um, I can, you know, I'm, I'm, of course, getting so many just amazing um, messages from from readers on social media, um, on contact me form on stuff like that. And there's sort of this anxiety response of like, I need to like, like them all or acknowledge them or reply so that they you know, feel like I heard them and, you know, just I'm like racing through and tapping hearts and um, I forcing myself to like, stop, read this, take this in. Mm-hmm. What is this person saying? Like, wow, that's incredible that this person took the time, you know, that somebody I went to high school with took the time to say congratulations or that the stranger, this like random person in Louisiana, like read this book and that it really resonated with them. Like what a gift, like, oh my God, how lucky am I that, I'm able to kind of, you know, affect people with my words, with these books I'm putting out. That was the whole goal. So just trying to remember to slow down, to feel grateful, to say thank you and really mean it and like accept compliments instead of sort of, you know, judo fighting them off and deflecting. And then also to just try to sort of practice self-compassion when I have, when I inevitably have feelings that are not positive, even in the midst of all this great stuff. Um, and to sort of talk back to the voice that's saying, 
uh, you're not worthy or you're not, you don't deserve this or how dare you not feel great when you have this thing happening that so many people would kill for. Yeah, I was, it was a rude awakening for me when I realized my need for validation wouldn't be assuaged by any amount of success. Like I had all of these markers that I was like, at this point, I won't, I won't need it anymore. And then I kept needing it. And I was like, I literally had this like, oh shit moment with my therapist where I'm like, I guess it's going to have to come from inside of me. (laughs) Like it was so disappointing because it's so much harder. I'm doing the like thing too, though, where I, people will be like, oh, like, like they'll say the kindest things, like your recipes changed my life. They changed my relationship with food. I wore a bikini to the beach for the first time. And I'll, I, for some reason, it does not permeate. But anytime somebody is like crit- critiques anything, I'm like, oh, sunk in. I got it. Thank you so much. And I'm really trying to do the same thing where I, I sit and try to internalize the good things that people say. Because I think you like need, you need to, you know, it, it's funny yeah. how my brain won't let me do that. And it makes it so much harder. I'm just like, yeah, yeah, I changed your life, blah, 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 like moving on. But mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, you didn't you didn't like this thing that I did. I will I will marinate on that and try yes. to appease you forever. <laughs> Thank you so much. I know. It's um, so nuts. Yeah. It's like it's like you'll have 99 nice comments and then one person will tag me. First of all, don't ever tag a review. To tag, if you write a review of anything, don't tag the person unless, you know, there's some reason to. It's but- positive. It's if, yes. like if it, yeah, if it's like a shitty review, they don't need to know about that. I don't need to. Yes, I have, I get plenty of that. I talk to my editor about reviews. You do not need to tag me. Thank you very much. But that is it's the also one published. Like yes. that's my thing too. Is it's like it's done. I can't yeah. change it. I'm just I, like yes. it's over. Yes, I cannot like make the character less annoying to you now. I don't know what you want, but um, it's it's always like that's the one I believe, right? It's like yeah. it's like Reese can like my books, like like you know other authors I really admire can like my books, like my editor and agent who I think are brilliant really like my books, and then like random person from like North Carolina <laughs> thinks that the ending was a little rushed, and I'm like she's right. <laughs> oh my gosh. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. Okay, you know what stat blows my mind? People in the U.S. take about 20,000 breaths per day and spend an average of 90%, 90% of their time indoors. And that indoor air can be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. Indoor air pollutants can cause respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. I talked about this with a world-famous doctor friend years ago, and I was like, it is awful. What do I do? And she said, you need a high-quality air purifier, and you need to keep one in any room that you spend a ton of time in, which is why I am so excited to introduce you to Air Doctor. Air Doctor goes above and beyond the HEPA standard, which requires that 99.97% of particles at 0.3 microns be captured by a filter. Air Doctor uses an ultra HEPA filter that was independently tested and proven to remove at least 99.99% of particles as small as 0.003 microns. That is 100 times smaller than the HEPA standard. This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander. For any other pet parents who are allergic to their babies, this makes the biggest difference in my allergies with Bella. Highly recommend for that alone. This includes dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. Also, if you live somewhere that is coming up on potential fires this summer, please, please, please get an air doctor so you have it ready. Breathing in smoke is 
awful for your lungs. And as somebody who lives in California, it gives me such peace of mind that I have my air doctor ready to go. We have a few, but if you are starting with one, keep it in the bedroom. That way you're breathing great air for at least a third of your life and it'll help you get better sleep, which will have so many downstream positive effects. And as a little bonus extra, it has such a nice white noise sound. It actually helps me fall asleep and stay asleep. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you do not love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code LizMoody, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. And this part is exclusive to Liz Moody podcast listeners. You will receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code Liz Moody. When I worked as a magazine editor, I wrote more than a thousand articles about turmeric because pretty much all of the doctors that I used as sources kept recommending it or citing it as one of the supplements that they would personally take. Here's the background. Turmeric is one of the most powerful ways to fight inflammation. In a nutshell, there are two types of inflammation, acute and chronic. Acute inflammation can actually be a good thing. It's one of the ways that your body heals and repairs itself. But when that system goes haywire, we get chronic inflammation, which essentially makes your body feel like it's constantly under attack. The vast majority of doctors I work with cite chronic inflammation as one of the root causes of so many of our modern ailments, and research links inflammation with heart disease, diabetes, autoimmune conditions, cancer, arthritis, and gut issues like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. I am never going to sit around and tell you that a supplement will cure everything that ails you, but if you're looking for a turmeric supplement to help get your inflammation under control, I am extremely impressed with Paleo Valley's. To increase the bioavailability of turmeric, you need to consume it with black pepper, which most people know, and fat, which many people forget about. Paleo Valley's turmeric complex has black pepper and coconut oil to maximize absorption and three other powerful anti-inflammatories, ginger, rosemary, and clove, for a maximum synergistic response. It also has no fillers, binders, or preservatives and is made with all organic ingredients and just a veggie capsule. Finally, it's third-party tested, which is something I always look for in supplements as extra assurance of their quality. I've had my uncle taking this for about three months, and he's gone from having debilitating back pain due to an autoimmune condition to being almost completely pain-free. Paleovality has a number of other incredibly high-quality food-derived supplements, including a vitamin C that I adore. Vitamin C is my ultimate favorite supplement for skin health, and a NeuroEffect mushroom powder that Zach loves for increasing energy and focus. So definitely explore their website. If you'd like to check out the turmeric complex, the vitamin C, the NeuroEffect, or any of Paleo Valley's other amazing products, head over to paleovalley.com and use the code LizM for 15% off. That's paleovalley.com and code LizM for 15% off your order. And if you have any questions, feel free to hit me up on Instagram. I love chatting about this stuff. Now, let's get back to the episode. Okay, can we talk about money briefly? I don't we can get as nitty-gritty or not nitty-gritty as you want, but I am curious like if you were surprised by any of the financial elements of this career path, either in editorial or in publishing. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I look back on my early jobs in, in editing and, you know, I worked at Condé Nast, um, as a 22 year old making $27,000 a year. I got them up from $24,000 a year. Thank you very much. Good for you. Um, Good for you. <laughs> which looking back, I'm like, good Lord, how did I do that? Um, <laughs> And then I bounced around a lot and I very much feel like if you can, like bouncing around is the way to get more money. It just is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I really watched my salary double, triple, and then eventually close to, I guess it didn't ever fully quadruple, but close to quadruple within um, a maybe six, six or so years of being a professional editor by just asking for more. Um, my mom actually was an executive recruiter before she retired. So she really drilled into me, you know, just negotiating is simply asking them, like, can you get, can you pay this? And it's not insulting. It's not rude. It's not personal. It is simply like knowing your worth and, and saying it, and they will respect you more for doing it. Like never before has an offer been rescinded because you asked for more money. Like the worst thing they can say is no. Like, I love your whole philosophy of like, let them say no, like, don't, yep. don't you be the one. So yeah, within sort of the corporate world, I, um, yeah, did, did a lot of sort of like advocating for myself and for friends and was very, um, you know, always was happy, was eager to talk about, um, salaries within, within the magazine industry, because I feel like if you don't talk about it with your coworkers, like it just sort of maintains, it's just, you're just working for the man then, right? Like you're just, yep you know, keeping the patriarchy going. Um, so, so yeah, so I worked my way up my final job. I was at 105, um, as a deputy editor, which in retrospect was awfully low for being a number two editor. Um, and I wish I had, you know, done more, done more discussing with people, but then I was freelancing and as a freelancer and also as an author, um, my personal take home has been, um, somewhere between like a hundred and 150 every year and kind of the piece of the pie that is books has shifted and, and, um, been able to get larger. Uh, and then I can kind of pull back from other lucrative stuff like, you know, content writing and, and, um, you know, doing magazine features for a few thousand dollars a pop. Um, I'm sort of doing less of that as I'm doing more writing, Um, and what else? I think, I think an agent is like one of the most important decisions you can make for what that determines what sort of offer you're going to get. Um, and I know that's such a tricky thing because it's, it's gatekeeping right there. Like the agent feels like you're begging someone to take you on when actually you're sort of hiring them, uh, because they're going to be taking a 15% cut of your work. But I've just seen like, I've seen people sign with agents who sort of don't advocate for them. And if their first book doesn't do super well, like, you know, I feel like my agent would say like, okay, well then that was their problem. You have a fantastic idea for the next book and we're going to demand even more money for it. And I've seen- Oh my God, I love her. Yes, she's the best. And I've seen (laughs) agents um, telling, at least from the authors as they're relaying it, seeing agents sort of be like, well, it didn't sell that well. So probably not going to get more for it. And- you know, and just sort of not, you know, demanding that they get paid with their worth. So I think really doing your research on um, the agent piece and having frank discussions with them about like, what is going to happen if this, if, you know, we, you out my manuscript and nobody wants it, what is going to happen if, 
you know, the first book doesn't sell that well. Like, how do you see my career moving forward from there? Mm-hmm. Um, and just really having those discussions because I think it's so important. Something that I think a lot of people don't realize about uh, the publishing career, the sort of like fiction writing career, is that the reason that I'm that I am able to keep bringing in money and living off of my writing is that I write incredibly quickly because you get this advance that, um, like, let's say it's a hundred thousand dollars, which again is is a big advance, and there's a ton of privilege that I can't even account for going into that with me being you know white and young and all those things, but you get that they tell you this advance amount, but then you only actually get like a quarter or a third of it on signing. And then you're getting these other chunks um, later on when you turn in the final manuscript on publication of the hardcover. If there is a paperback, you might get the fourth uh, when the paperback comes out. So like, you know, it was July, 2017 that I sold the last night, but I didn't get one fourth of that advance until paperback came out which was early 2020 right so there's two and a half years in between so that that money was chopped up into a bunch of little pieces um and then there's other pieces that um you know i sold world rights but if you didn't sell world rights maybe foreign sales would be additional checks that come in the mail the options like i said they're not a huge amount of money If, if it actually gets made that would be another big chunk of money but the options are another like piece that's coming in And so it's definitely like a feast and famine sort of lifestyle because you have these, in my case, overlapping checks coming at different times. So like I am still waiting on, um, you know, I'll get more money when We Were Never Here comes out in paperback next year. I will get um, more money. Hopefully I'll get more money this year when um, they accept my manuscript for book four, the one that I'm working on now. I will hopefully get more money at the end of this year or the beginning of next year when we sell my next book. And since we're in a groove now, I can do it based on um, like some sample chapters and an outline, like you said. Um, As it should be. As it should be, my God. But because of that, it's sort of these like staggered different money from different books coming in within a year. And so um, if you think of it as a serial endeavor of like, I will completely finish this book. And then when it is all behind me, I will begin to write the next one and even conceive of what it might be. It's going to impact you financially. I mean, it sounds obvious, but I don't know that people think about that. Like I am working on um, and promoting several spinning plates at once. And that's sort of what allows me to do this full time. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And I think it's also interesting and a interesting like realization I've had as I've had more and more friends become successful authors is that I kind of assumed the second that your book first I assumed the second your book was published, period, you were like super rich, life was good to go. <laughs> and then I like dissuaded myself of that opinion. And then I was like, Oh, but if your book is in the airport bookstores and New York Times and Reese's Book Club you're fucking rich and good to go. And now I've been like, I know so many authors who are just, their books are everywhere, but they're making a good living, but they're not like making the amount of money that I had. You know, I think I assumed everybody was like a Jessica Knoll or, um, you know, you hear about these these authors who are making millions and millions of dollars. And I, I hadn't realized that being an author can be a good way to create a comfortable living as a creative, but the ones who are making millions and millions of dollars are sort of more few and far between than I had thought. 
Yes, they're definitely the exception and not the rule. And, you know, I have a, I have a friend who her book hit the New York Times bestseller list. And then pretty shortly after, um, she got some bad news about what they were pushing up her paperback publication date, which is sort of usually an indication that, like, they don't think the hardcover is going to keep selling. Because um, mm. the idea is they make as much as they can off the hardcover and then they roll out the paperback. Cause it's because cheaper. it's more expensive to exactly. buy the, the hardcover. The hardcover is more expensive. So they're like, let's shake down every buyer we can. Um, and then we'll move on to the next. And I was like, I was so confused. I was like, but it hit the list. And she was like, yeah, they can't stop reminding me that it was only there for two weeks. So it's like, even oh if you're a New York Times bestseller, <laughs> a New York Times bestseller, it's still like, oh, but you weren't, you didn't stay there. It's like, there's always some reason that like, oh, well, you were, you hit the list, but you weren't on hardcover fiction. You were in combined or like, oh my God, you can always like compare up. I think it's such a yes. like life lesson to learn. And I'm not saying you should sit around like comparing your life to people who are worse off than you because that feels a little mean. But I do think that we always compare up. And even just if you switch that to comparing to past you or, you know, I just think there's so many ways to not compare up that that make your life feel better. I've heard that about the New York Times too thing. Like somebody was some one of my friends was number three on the list and her agent was like, okay, how are we going to get it to number two? And she's like, I, we're, we're number three. <laughs> Isn't that <Yeah>. really good? <laughs> I'm happy with this. Yeah. Like, can we just be happy here, you know? Can we not just enjoy this? No. And I love that idea of sort of comparing yourself to uh, your past you. And I think like a really powerful thing that's really easy to forget is like, what would like little Andy who was writing oh in that gosh. journal, I want to be an author someday, think of this uh, or even high school me or, you know, me five years ago when I started writing seven years ago when I started writing the last night, like having sort of that step back moment, I think can be so important. And that also, like literally just made my chest type picturing little Andy, like writing, I want to be an <laughs> author. And then you like come back from the future and you're like, here's your pile of books and they have really cool covers. And you're going to really <laughs> like them. You know, she'd be like, oh my God. It's pretty, it is pretty freaking wild. And um, yeah, so easy to just become accustomed to, you know, a photo of it in the, in the airport or something. But like, that's huge. I, I went to the Hudson News and like, you know, looked at the books on the wall. And, you know, the other thing I'll say about comparison is that um, 100% we're going to, we're going to compare up. It's really easy to do, but something really powerful that um, an author friend told me was, you know, like my life really, my life really changed when I, you know, accepted that I can be happy for and jealous of someone at the same time. And it's so simple, but we have this idea of like, you know, I have, I have good friends who are incredible writers who, you know, will have accolades I will never have. One's a you know, National Book Award finalist and, and winning awards and just these things that, like, especially in my genre, I don't know why I'm comparing. We don't even do the same thing. But it's really hard to not be jealous. And then I would feel this guilt response of, like, oh, I am such a shitty friend that, like, I'm jealous mm-hmm. of this person. And then I'm sort of self-flagellating. And, um, yeah, once you just sort of acknowledge, like, we can all hold many, many emotions at once. We all contain multitudes and I can both be jealous of that particular thing and be excited for them and happy for them and love them and think they totally deserve it. Um, and that has nothing to do with me. Like once I hold those two things at the same time, like it's just a much bigger relief to be excited for them and to, you know, send them your congrats and feel really authentic in it. And like the fact that you're also jealous does not take away from how, incredibly excited you are for them. 
Well, and I think like a lot of the stuff we've talked about in this conversation, jealousy doesn't make you a bad person. It's not like a unique thing. It's a universal human emotion. Universal. And I think a lot of what we we've just increased exposure so much these days. So I think we took what was always a universal human emotion and we have just exponentially made it greater just by the fact that we have so much more exposure to people to be jealous of. And I don't think that that makes us bad. I think it just makes us human. Right. It's so universal. There's so much data now. And, and you know, we can know that people are, of course, like putting their very best, the very brightest versions of their lives on Instagram. And we can have those shocking moments where you find out someone's getting divorced and you're like, but your photos are perfect. Um, but even then, it doesn't stop us from looking at Instagram, seeing a happy photo or seeing yeah. a piece of good news and being like, that is their reality 100% of the time. Like, we just... We can't help it. That's how we process things. And like, I completely agree. Jealousy is, it's adaptive. It makes sense that we feel it. It's important for us as social creatures who evolve within tribes to like, you know, aspire to things that we think would be nice Mm -hmm. for ourselves and to sort of be doing this, uh, you know, keeping track of like, what is our standing and how do, how does my peer group feel about me? And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just, of course we do it and we don't need to feel guilty about it. But I think, yeah, we make everything worse with sort of that that second arrow, as Tara Brock calls it, of judging our own feelings and deciding we're yeah. bad people for feeling a certain way. And like, I'm just really this year, especially working on like the self-compassion part and just sort of the like, it's okay. I don't need to send up that second arrow. This is just a feeling I'm having. And I have 102 feelings in a day. A big goal for mine in general this year is living in the and. I think mm. the and is a, an important place to live and um, we can forget to do that. Yes. I would love to end on kind of a positive and a negative, I guess I would say. So can we have – can we talk about one thing that you found harder about this career or that you struggled with um, that people might not know about and how you move through that? So I had this idea and I think a lot of people have this idea, kind of like we said before, that you get the book deal, your dreams are coming true. And from there on out, it is just a big party and it is smooth sailing and it is nothing but fun. Um, when in reality, what I found, and I, I've talked to enough people to feel this is fairly universal, is that like, there's a lot of gaslighting in the industry and you, the author, are sort of made to feel responsible for um, for any bad news and sort of the... And I'm not trying to pile on my publisher because I think this is, I have a wonderful publisher and I I love the team I work with. And, and like I said, this is really universal, but authors are often cut out of conversations. And so we don't really understand what's going on or why. Um, Sometimes we're made to feel sort of like nuts for asking for something or asking a question Mm. or, or, you know, can I, you know, what, why can't I have bookmarks that have the book on them that I could hand out and things like that. Um, there's just a lot of um, sort of like ego and um, there's a lot of sort of intangible social politics going on in the publishing industry that I did not expect um, that apparently mm-hmm. is quite universal from, from what I hear from other authors. And um, it's hard and it still can be really frustrating when, you know, it feels like they're telling me X, they're wanting me to do Y when they won't do X or Y for me. And, and you feel mm. almost like this adversarial 
feeling when it's like, we all have the same goal. We all want to like sell my book and I'm like the one who you know, right. created it. Um, so there was a lot of like being quiet about this and feeling shame around it. Shame is sort of a, you know, through line. And I think things we've talked about today, it's a through line in my books. I think it's a through line for all women. Um, but there was a lot of shame around it and just feeling like, am I crazy? Like, am I the only one having this experience? And what has been hugely helpful is like having a few trusted people in the industry to just discuss it with and to sort of like laugh together and to sort of like roll our eyes together and like, you know, be mad on one another's, you know, be frustrated on one another's uh, behalf. And um, so I think, yeah, within the, within the sort of professional publishing community, I'm sure that like editors and agents are complaining about authors when we're not around too. So I don't feel that bad about it. Um, I think it can be really helpful to uh, do a little of your own networking. You know, if you have an agent, you could ask to um, be connected to some of their other clients who are in the same world or, mm. um, you know, other, other um, authors that your editor works with, or, you know, you'll just start sort of meeting people within your community. Um, and, and, you know, obviously, not being the negative Nancy, obviously not seeming ungrateful, never doing it publicly, but I think it can be really helpful to have those like few sort of allies in the industry that will just help you with like the nutty quality of all of this. It just sometimes feels like, you know, it's like you thought magazine publishing and like journalism was nutty. Like Liz, you don't even know. You don't even know. It's it's interesting because I always was like movies, books, like magazines, people are producing these, essentially what I thought of as like magical things. And I think I thought of it as like a magical process and magical people producing it. And the more I've been involved, I'm like, oh, these are just people doing their jobs and going to work and their workplace has all of the like weird office dynamics that you would get in a lot of different workplaces, you know? A hundred percent. That's such a good way to put it is like, I similarly just had this idea that like, it was going to be this magical, beautiful world of like book lovers making my book and it was going to be smooth sailing and wonderful every single day. And like, it's stupid now that I sort of, you know, say that, but like, yeah, no, it's just people and there's just politics and confusion yeah. and missed, you know, missed signal, mixed signals and um, people not knowing what's going on. So yeah, um, that was a surprise to me. And um I think maybe if I'd expected it, it would have been a little bit less of a shock. Um, But yeah, just knowing that and knowing it's not just me, it's like truly every author feels this way helps a lot. Okay. I lied. There's two more. So the second to last one is what's your favorite part about this job? Oh oh my goodness. Um, So many things. I think one of the things I love the most is just, so writing is terrible a lot of the time. Uh, and I talked about like getting like butt in seat and fingers on the keyboard. And sometimes it is absolutely like pulling teeth and I am just like, just dragging myself through these scenes and I don't know where I'm going. I feel so salty about it, but there are times in the writing or revising process that I am just so in the flow and I can just see a scene and something interesting happens that I didn't see coming or, you know, a character says something unexpected or I just write a little, a single phrase that like really captures what I'm trying to get at. And it is such a high, it is such a cool feeling. Um, And so I just never, I try to never lose sight of the fact that like I'm, 
being paid to do this and I'm being paid to do something I love and I'm being paid to go into that flow state and just really like tap into my own creativity and to, to explore these issues that are really important to me and meaningful to me and this stuff about, you know, women's safety and violence and shame and friendships and, uh, you know, internalized sexism and all of these, um, all of these topics that I have really strong feelings about, like I get this incredible opportunity to not only write about them, but then have a lot of people read and discuss them. And that is just a completely mind blowing, um, you know, mind blowing thing that just hits me at random times. And I kind of like, am falling over from the force of it. That's really, truly stunning to me. And I just try to remember that and keep, keep sight of it when there's some silly, you know, office politics kind of thing happening. Um, because I really, am just so grateful. And it's, I have to say that your books do that so incredibly well. Like I feel like the, I don't read thrillers much. I think I've told you that, like I read yours basically. Mm -hmm. Um, but (laughs) I feel, I love how much your books more than any other books I read feel like they represent the world that I'm living in and the conversations that my friends and I are having. And I feel like I see that reflected so rarely and it is such a satisfying experience because I'm like oh my gosh this is like exactly the type of thing I would talk with my best friend about and now I need to go talk with her about it and I need to go have this conversation and the world just feels like my world oh thank you that is so meaningful but it's it's just really I mean this is sort of a subset of what I already said but I feel like writing a book is like you go deep into yourself and you pull out these things that you feel and you have no idea if other people feel them, right? We don't know what it's like to Mm. live in anyone else's body or be in anyone else's brain, but it's describing, um, yeah, these emotions and these vulnerabilities and these, these thoughts, these often shameful thoughts, um, that, you know, they're not autobiographical. I haven't actually killed anyone, but, um, (laughs) just, just these reactions and these, these sort of experiences, I'm like pulling them out of myself and putting them on the page. And then to have other people say that they resonated or made them feel seen. It's just like the most, you know, Emily, Emily Nagoski talks about, um, how our brains can do this really cool magic trick where like when you're, you know, at a concert together, your brains actually start like kind of pulsing in tandem and it gives you that sort of transcendent feeling uh, that you get at like, you know, you could get it at a rally, you could get it at church, you could get it at a concert. And like, for me, it's this unbelievable gift to sort of be able to get that like person to person with strangers because I put a bunch of words on a page and somebody else reads that and it affects them. And that's just totally mind blowing to me. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, it's probably why I think I put authors and uh, rock stars up on my like highest pedestals of what the coolest thing to be in the world is. And it probably like, though, it's interesting that those are the two things that would sort of lead the pulsing in tandem. Um, Well, I mean, like, I, yeah, you realize that you do that, Liz, right? You realize that like you, by creating this community, having these really like honest discussions in your podcast, you know, being this supplier of like life-changing advice and tips and like your amazing like 35 things I've learned in 35 you realize that you're doing that right and that literally people are telling you that and you don't want to listen <laughs> I'm double tapping a cute little heart on that and um <laughs> <laughs> all right only save that save that for later all right <laughs> when you're editing you. <laughs> future Liz who's editing this I really I'll want you to like and listen pause. to it <laughs> 
I will. I'll try to listen to it. And I appreciate you saying it. Okay. If you were going to give somebody advice about pursuing a creative career, what's one thing that you would kind of leave them with at the end of this episode? It's a great question too. Let me think about that. I think my best advice is, is sort of the, the creative equivalent of like trust, but verify. It's like, go do it, but also like maybe have a healthy dose of, um, you know, reality about it. I I tend to find that people either are in this camp of like, I'm going to quit my job and write a book and it's going to like do everything or like, it's never going to happen for me. I've been working on the same manuscript for the Mm. last 12 years. Uh, No one's ever, and they're sort of jaded. Like no one's able to make money doing this. No one's ever. Um, And I don't, I don't know that either is entirely wrong, but like my advice would be to, to live in the and, and to hold in your hand both like this this possibility and spark and hope that like if I put in the work and I write this whole book and I work really hard on revising it and I read books about craft and I read books about plotting and feet sheets and I maybe hire maybe even hire an editor at the end to like help me get this into some kind of shape. If I put in the time, this absolutely could like why not me? I absolutely could sign with a great literary agent and get a book deal out of it. But then to also like hold in your other hand, and I'm like physically holding out my two hands as if you can see me, but to hold in your other hand, like um, it isn't, it is hard and it is a hard industry and like it takes a ton of work and there's a ton of um, privilege and, and luck involved. And those things are true as well. So, um, you know, I, I imagine that you and I have both given the advice to people who are interested in editorial of like, you know, don't be too precious about like, don't just, like you said, don't turn your nose up at um, other things that are going to support yourself, right? So, you know, if you have this dream of writing a book, then like find a way to write your book and carve out time for it. But um, if you're going to like quit your job to do it, then you should really have thought hard about like what your plan is and how you're going to support yourself. Um, And, you know, don't back yourself into this corner where it's like, I've poured my whole life into this book, but I didn't bother reading about the business or reading about how to make a book that sells. And then I just feel like I'm screwed. Because again, it is a job. It's a job and it has all the machinations of a normal job, albeit with slightly like a different type of output. Exactly. Exactly. Like it really is, it is, it's easy to put it on a pedestal, but as someone doing it, like I, I'm very grateful to do it, but there's still days that I hate it and days I absolutely don't want to do it. And, um, I think it can be dangerous to like keep it up on this pedestal as you're pursuing it. Right. Um, so just acknowledge going in, like, this is what I want to do. Here's how I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to treat it like a job. I'm going to treat it like anything else, any other like trade that I wanted to learn. And, um, it's absolutely worth pursuing. And I, um, you know, hate when people are like, nobody can make money doing that. Or you need a rich husband. Like I don't have a rich husband. It's, it's, I don't, I'm not, you know, eating caviar every night, but I don't have a rich husband. I did make it happen with a ton of hard work and yes, also some luck and privilege. So I feel like I'm giving you like a non-answer because I'm just walking this knife's edge between, but I would like both caution and encourage um, and just, yeah, just remind people like, 
know why you're doing it and be really honest with yourself. Like, is this something that you want to do in your free time? Is this something you want to self-publish? Is this something that you want it to be your full-time job, in which case you're going to pursue it in a different way? And like, there is nothing wrong with any of those options. So just be honest with yourself about what sort of your, uh, why you're doing this and like what outcomes you're ultimately hoping for. I'm going to pitch you and your book effusively at the top of the episode, but uh, if you want to tell people in your own words why your newest book or any of your books are so great, I'll give you the space to do so now. <laughs> uh, all right. No pressure. <laughs> so, so I like to write thrillers that center uh, complex female relationships and take readers into sort of these close-knit, closed-door worlds. Um, so my debut, The Last Night, is a murder mystery that's set within sort of the, the loft parties of hipster Brooklyn circa 2009. Um, my sophomore novel, The Herd, is a whodunit that's set in an exclusive, elite, bougie, all-female co-working space in Manhattan. Uh, and We Were Never Here, which is the Reese's Book Club pick and a New York Times bestseller, uh, is about two globe-trotting best friends who uh, kill a backpacker in self-defense during their dream vacation through Chile um, and decide to bury the body and get the hell out of there. Uh, and so it's about sort of their friendship being stretched to the limits in the aftermath, as well as the walls kind of closing in on them and their cover-up. So if you like books that are um, fiercely feminist and quick-moving and... Um, you know, just really go deep into those themes of, um, you know, relationships between women and um, internalized sexism and women's safety and all this stuff about what it means to be a woman in modern society. You just might enjoy them, as did Reese herself. How was that? <laughs> that was great. I've been so I'm in the part of We Were Never Here where they just buried that body. And I'm just like, how do you ever go back to living a normal life after like you'd always I'd always be so nervous that I would get caught and like also anytime I feel like I was like this ice cream tastes good I'd be like oh I killed somebody like I just feel like you can't ever ever live a normal life after that moment again and I just keep feeling so bad for them as they're doing it because I'm just like uh, how and do you, you Liz have just you described the remaining <laughs> the remaining two-thirds of the book <laughs> I'm I'm curious to see how they deal with it because I'm just like oof oof that's like a lot of uh, <laughs> emotional trauma for me the normal person um, but yeah I'm loving it so far and I also love you like I said it feels like this most recent book like I love the herd because I spent a lot of time in those worlds that you were describing yes. and like the 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 elite workspace worlds and I feel like you captured it so well um, but this is fun because it feels like a little bit of a vacation like you you capture the fun of travel a little bit I mean the the less murdery parts capture the fun the non-murdery parts yeah yeah that was really I mean I started writing it before the pandemic but then I was revising it during the pandemic and it was like ah, oh, thank god for this excuse to like mm. you know airdrop into Chile and you know lake life in Wisconsin and some different places Love that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I feel like if people like this conversation, like you bring all of those elements of of thoughtfulness and introspection and thinking about the way the world works and the way our brains work and the way our relationships work into your book. So I know that they will, everybody will love them. Thank you so much for having me and for those kind words. And um, yeah, I'm just really grateful to be on your podcast. I love it so much.
I hope you loved this episode with Andy. As always, I would love to hear any things you're thinking as you were listening or any feedback or thoughts or things that resonated. So definitely tag us both on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody and she is at Andy with an I, Bart. And if you did love the episode, I would so appreciate a quick rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the podcast and I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. I read them all. They make my day every single time I read them. And if you're new here, don't forget to subscribe. We have a lot of amazing episodes coming up and I would be honored to have you as part of the little HT family that we have built here. I love you all and I can't wait to see you on the next episode next week. Next week. It's not going to get old for a while on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. My favorite health hacks are the ones that have the biggest payoffs for the smallest amounts of effort, and this is such a good one. When you are drinking your tea or coffee in the morning, just add one packet or scoop of Great Lakes Wellness Collagen Peptides. I definitely was a bit of a collagen skeptic until I had dermatologist Dr. Whitney Bowe on the podcast. You can scroll back to her Ask the Doctor episode. She said it is not a myth. There is research to support how great collagen is for your skin. And then, of course, I did my own deep dive and I was so impressed with the known benefits for things like your skin, your hair, and your joint health. Studies show that collagen can help improve your skin's hydration, which is something that I'm especially looking for during this time of year when everything just feels a little bit drier. Zach likes the marine collagen, and then I like the grass-fed beef collagen, but both are incredibly well-sourced and certified by third parties, which is the number one thing that I look for. And since I've started incorporating collagen into my everyday routine, I have noticed strong and healthy nails, and my hair feels thicker and fuller, which we love. And Zach's knees are feeling so good despite all of the time that he is spending running. One of my favorite things about the Great Lakes Wellness Collagen Peptides is that I cannot taste them at all and they dissolve so well in hot and cold beverages. Not all collagen can dissolve in cold beverages and some days you just want an iced tea. To try out Great Lakes Wellness Collagen Packets or their bigger tubs, use code LizMoody for 25% off. Yes, 25% off. That is a huge discount off of your first purchase at greatlakeswellness.com. That is LizMoody for 25% off at greatlakeswellness.com.